0: So it's almost 15 years ago that I moved to the state of New Mexico as I moved to Alamogordo to be a youth pastor at a church there. I was really excited to move there and get started in pastoring the students of that church, of that city. Um, I got to be the youth pastor at that church for almost eight years before uh, moving here to start movement, and it was an amazing time. But there was one thing that had me nervous about that move. It was the first time in my life that I would genuinely be living Alone. Growing up until 18, I had obviously lived with my family, um, and then through college and the years immediately after college, I had always lived in, in either the dorms with a bunch of guys or in apartments with, with other guys, and so this would be the first time that I was going to genuinely be living a, a, alone, not having anyone else around, and what made me nervous about living alone is not what I think a lot of people get nervous about about living alone. The alone thing was actually pretty exciting. I'm actually I'm naturally pretty introverted. I enjoy time by, by myself, But what made me nervous was the simple dreadful question in the back of my head, what happens if something goes disastrously wrong for me while I'm alone in my apartment? What happens if something really bad happens like health-wise or there's some emergency for me while I'm here alone and I can't get a hold of someone else? I'm living in the city, you know, like 1,500 miles from the the people that I know and people that I like, like. what what happens if something bad happens to me while I'm alone? One thought that kept reverberating in my brain, and this will let you know how how odd I am, was what if one night before bed I'm using mouthwash and I gurgle it wrong and I choke on mouthwash and I die in my apartment like like that like that was a genuine like for a week like what happens like I, I like what if I'm like to the point that I just stopped using mouthwash at night because I was like, I just don't want to die in my apartment and not be able to get like, like, and have someone eventually have to come find me in my apartment, break into my apartment, find a dead body. I just didn't want any of that to happen. That was a very, like, that's ridiculous. I know it's ridiculous, I knew it was ridiculous, but that was a very real thought and fear for me at the time. The second thing that made me fear, made my fear very real um, was something that actually happened. Uh, I used to do quite a bit of running, and my fifth night in town, I went for a run after work. I went about four miles round trip, got home, sat down to take my shoes off, Stood up to head to the shower, and the next thing I knew, I woke up on my back on the ground with my head about an inch and a half away from the corner of my entertainment center in my living room. Now, I to this day, I I mean, I have no idea how long I had actually been passed out, but I was vividly aware when my eyes woke, like when I woke up and I looked up, I was vividly aware that I had fallen, if I had fallen just a little bit differently, I probably wouldn't have woken up at all. And if I had, I would have woken up in a puddle of my own blood from my head gushing out as it hit the entertainment center. So the next day, because I wanted to make sure that you know if, if I were to bleed out, if I were to choke out on mouth mouthwash that I started using again. If something were to happen to me, there was at least someone who could get into my apartment to come find the body. So the next day I went to the hardware store and made a copy of my apartment key, went into the office for work and called my assistant Beth who I'd known for all of a week, into my office and handed her my key. She said, "You know, what's this for?" I said, "Well, if I ever don't show up for work and you can't get a hold of myself, this is so you can rush to my apartment and make sure that I'm not dead." or discover that I am dead. And that was the story of the first time that I gave a girl a key to my apartment. Anyway, we are in this series, House Key, and here's what we're saying giving someone a house key is giving someone access to everything you have. Giving someone a house key is giving someone access to everything you have. And the reason we're talking about house keys is that in a sense, as Jesus walked the earth, God handed out and God dished out house keys like crazy. And as he did so, those who received the house keys and those who still receive the house keys gain access to everything that God had and everything that God has And the way Jesus extended these house keys on behalf of his heavenly father is through a simple invitation, follow me. Follow me and you'll eventually believe in me. Follow me and you'll grow to love me. Follow me and you'll get your theology all squared away. Follow me and you'll get all those behavior things squared away. Follow me and you'll love like me. Follow me and you'll have my peace, my grace, and my strength. Follow me and you will have everything you think you need and all the things that you don't even know you need. And where we landed last week was simply by saying this, that everything God has for you is on the other side of your yes to Jesus's invitation. Everything that God has for you is on the other side of your yes to that invitation of Jesus to follow him. And so God began passing out these house keys and he hasn't stopped since Jesus walked the earth. He has not stopped handing out and passing out the house keys and the invitation to follow Jesus. So that's where we left off in last week which leads to an interesting question. Well, who gets the invitation? Like, who gets the invitation? And that's a sticky question for a lot of us because as much as we want to say God extends the invitation to everyone, we also, let's be honest about ourselves, we also have a list of people that we might not be sure that we would give a house key to, people that we might be hesitant about giving a house key. And because of our hesitancy, we think Jesus would be hesitant to invite these people or those people, or that group, or the people that do this, or the people that behave like this, or the people that are in these types of relationships, or the people who go do this on the weekends, or any other groups of people. We we all have some groups of people that, let's be honest, if we're honest, we think that because we're hesitant about giving a house key or extending an invitation that Jesus might be just as hesitant about extending a house key. Now, can can I I say what what I hope you're thinking and what I know I'm thinking right now, even as I say that? That's kind of a gross way of thinking, right? I don't, I don't think there's anything in any one of us that wants to think that God would be hesitant to extend a house key to people. But we also know that inside of us, there is that hesitancy sometimes. And we think it might also apply to God. So that's a gross way of thinking, but it's something that we all have a tendency to do. I also would say, I think it maybe can be a dangerous way of thinking to think that God might exclude some people. But here's the thing, just as dangerous is thinking that you don't make the cut on the list of people who don't get an invitation and a house key extended to you. It's possible, let's be honest, it's possible that you are on your own list of people who don't get invited, who don't get the house key extended to you, people who don't get invited to follow Jesus. And if that's you, you think there's something that has disqualified you because you know what disqualifies other people and you have disqualified yourself. And if that's you, the good news is the story we're gonna spend time looking at today has some incredibly good news for you. Today, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter nine. This is what's called the call of Matthew, Matthew's gospel, Matthew Recorded the call of Matthew. This is Matthew's biography. This is Matthew giving a glimpse into when Jesus called him. This is an eyewitness. I am the witness account of Matthew. Matthew's first encounter with Jesus. Verse nine of chapter nine says this: As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew. Saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. Now here's a couple of things that we want to I want to make sure we understand here. Matthew, in Luke's gospel, Matthew is Matthew is called Matthew by Matthew, but in the gospel of Luke, Luke calls Matthew Levi. Now that's an interesting thing. So if you're like, wait, there's these two stories and one of them is called Matthew, one of them is called uh, called Levi. So are there two different tax collectors following Jesus? Here's the thing. There was a bunch of different tax collectors following Jesus. There was only one who became a disciple of Jesus and that guy's name was Matthew and his name was Levi. Now here's, the, here's what we have to understand. Matthew calls himself Matthew. By the time he meets Jesus, Matthew calls himself Matthew. Luke calls him by the, the name that he was given at birth, which was Levi. Now let's talk a little bit about what, about Levi. Levi it was the name of one of the 12 sons of Jacob when the nation of Israel began, where it traces its roots to, was a family known as the, the family of Jacob, the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, which would come to be known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and one of those 12 tribes was the tribe of Levi. These became known as the Levites. The Levites is the tribe that Moses would come from. Levites was the tribe of priests. They resided at the temple. They resided at the synagogues. Their job was to dwell in the presence of, of god their job was to be professionally holy their job was to be an intermediary between god and people offering sacrifices to make atonement for sin and to intercede for people they were supposed to be the earthly representation of God to the people, and to be their earthly reputation re- representation of pe- of people before God. This was supposed to be the job of the Levites. And when Levi's parent, when Matthew slash Levi's parents named him, what they were thinking is, we've got a baby boy, and we want him to be a Levi. We want him to carry the presence of God with him. We want him to represent the connection between God and man. We want such good things for our son. We want such big things from our son. We want our son to be a living embodiment of the holiness of God and the presence of God. We want our little boy to be someone that people look at and think, there goes the presence of God. That's what Levi slash Matthew's parents wanted for him. Instead, he chose this. He chose to be a tax collector. He chose to be what was known in that time as a publicanus or a publicans, which was a tax collector. This is this is. He was working for the Rome, in in Israel. He was working for the Romans. So he was working for an invading army to collect the taxes that would that would that would strip away the wealth of the Israelites and give it to the invading army so that they could go and invade more armies. Now tax collectors at that point, I, I don't know how else to talk about this, but tax collecting at, at that time actually worked a little bit like a multi-level marketing scheme or what some of us would call a pyramid scheme today. It, it, it's where that friend from high school that you haven't talked to in ages, they message you on Facebook wanting to tell you about the most exciting business opportunity they've ever had, oh my gosh, this company's so great, ah! Except instead of working, you know, selling scentsy candles and, and, and warmers, they you know, work for the government. So here, here's what happened. They assisted the conquerors and leveraged their position to accumulate personal wealth. So someone would go as a chief tax collector and make a presentation and a pitch and a bid to the Roman government saying, here's what it will cost us to go and collect your taxes. And then they would say to the, to the people that they hired and that they farmed out to actually do the collection of taxes, you take whatever cut you think is necessary you get you accumulate and you take a cut to pay yourself then you send on the taxes to us so these people would use their position, use their 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 power, use their authority to collect extra taxes. Everyone knew that this was going on. So government tax was let's say 25 percent. They would charge 35 percent, collect 35 percent. They would keep 10 percent. Uh, they would keep you know the 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 distance between 25 and 35 percent, give pass it on to the person that they were responsible to. Then they would pass it on up to the government. This is how the tax collectors work. This is why they were hated. They accumulated great personal wealth by extortion and by and by representing the government that had come to invade and attack and conquer and reign over the people of Israel. Jewish people working as tax collectors were loathed. They were loathed by the Jewish people. This is most likely why Matthew adopted the name Matthew and turned his back on the name Levi because no one who was supposed to be a Levi could do the things that Matthew had done. And yet, did you notice what happened at the end of that first verse? Jesus spots Matthew, spots the former Levi, spots this guy who's adopted the name Matthew because that's who he's chosen to be because he's turned his back on being Levi. Did you notice what happened between Jesus and Matthew? Jesus invited Matthew to follow him. Jesus invited Matthew to follow him. And what we know about Jesus because we're told in scripture is that Jesus knew the hearts of men. Jesus knew because he was a tax collector. Jesus had probably seen him before. Jesus had probably crossed his booth before. Jesus knew everything there was to know about Matthew, which means he knew that he had been Levi, which means he knew that he was extorting people, which means he knew he was partying, which means he knew he was using his wealth for his own benefit and the benefit of no one else. And in in while knowing all of that about him, Jesus still desired a relationship with him because, and this is the good news for you. This is the good news for me. This is the good news for every person who ever walks the earth. Jesus desired relationship with people who were nothing like him. Jesus desired relationship with people who were nothing like Jesus. And the good news of that is simply this, that no matter how different your life has looked until this moment, no matter how different your life has looked from in, up until this moment, how different it's looked from the life that Jesus had for you, the life that Jesus wants for you, no matter how different it has looked from that up until this moment, you are invited to follow Jesus you sitting on your couch, you at your kitchen table, you on the, in, in the bathroom, you on your back porch, you are invited to follow Jesus. You, no matter what you did this weekend, no matter what you did this week, no matter what compromises you made at work this week, no matter how you treated your, your your neighbors this week, no matter how you treated your kids this week, no matter what you did this week, today, right now, you are extended the invitation by Jesus, and I'm and I'm offering it on his behalf. You are extended the invitation to follow him. He has extended the house key to you. He has given access to everything to you because he wants a relationship with you because he loves you. Jesus desires a relationship with you no matter what you have looked like and no matter what you have acted like and no matter what you have behaved like and no matter how you have, how you have treated other people. Jesus desires a relationship with you no matter what you looks like. Let me take this one step further because I think Matthew's story reflects this. Jesus desires a relationship with people who have abandoned the person that they were created to be. Matthew has abandoned the idea of being Levi. Matthew Matthew has adopted an entirely different identity. Matthew has adopted an entirely different name. Matthew is saying, I am no longer Levi because Levi couldn't do the things that Matthew has to do. He has turned his back on being the person that he was born to be, the person he was created to be, and Jesus still desires a relationship with him. Jesus desires relationship with people who have abandoned the person they were created to be, and Jesus extends the invitation to those who have exchanged their ultimate purpose for momentary pleasure. So if you are a person, if you are a person who has ever exchanged your ultimate purpose, who you were made to be, what you were created to do, how you were called to live, you've exchanged your ultimate purpose for momentary pleasure, Jesus still extends the invitation to you. Jesus desired a relationship with a Levi who had become a Matthew. Jesus extends the invitation to sons and daughters who have run from the Father and become orphans. Jesus extends the invitation to those who have exchanged the truth for a lie. Jesus extends the invitation to those who have exchanged peace for chaos. Jesus extends the invitation to those who have exchanged fellowship for isolation. Jesus extends the the invitation to those who knew better but chose worse. So the good news of Jesus, if any of those describe you, is the invitation to follow Jesus, the invitation into relationship with Jesus is available for you and it's available to you. And the moment that you accept the invitation to follow Jesus, the moment you say, yes, I'll follow you, You are given access to everything Jesus has for you and everything your heavenly father desires for you, no matter what you has looked like to this moment. Jesus opens the doors of heaven for you the moment you begin to follow him. He desires a relationship with people who are nothing like him. He desires a relationship with people who have abandoned who they were called and created and born to be. And he extends the invitation to those who have exchanged their ultimate purpose for momentary Now, let me go on. "'Follow me and be my disciple,' Jesus said to him." So Matthew got up, and he followed him. Now, someone who was nothing like Jesus wanted to be closer to Jesus. Like, Jesus' invitation wasn't surprising to people who pay attention at the time. Jesus was constantly inviting people to follow him. What was surprising was that Matthew got up, and he followed Jesus, Matthew apparently saw in Jesus the opportunity to leave his wretched life behind and to begin anew. Matthew saw in Jesus an opportunity to leave his life, as we talked about last week, an opportunity to leave his life and to step into Jesus's new life. This is an important truth. No matter what your life has looked like, you can find new life as you follow Jesus. No matter what your life has looked like up until this point, you can find new life as you follow Jesus. Jesus. You walk in new life. You step into his resurrection life. You find that your life is exchanged for his life, and you find that his life is better in the here and now and leads to eternal life in the then and there. This is what the life of Jesus does. It's attractive to people who are nothing like Jesus because they see in Jesus something better than the life they have lived, and I'm telling you, it's better than the life you have lived. Verse 10 tells us this. Later, this is an interesting story. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to come to his house as dinner guests. It's like, all right, and throw a nice little potluck for Jesus. But then here's what we're told. Along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. So Matthew, who has this present that he wanted to turn into his past, Matthew knows that all of his friends, the people like that, that, that he would call his friends, the people that he works with, the people that he spends his nights with, the people that, that he spent time with outside of work, that he's like, these are, my, these are my friends. These are my people. These are the people that spend time with Matthew slash, who used to be Levi. Matthew wanted his old friends to meet his new friend. Matthew had quickly been so impacted by Jesus that he wants all his friends to meet Jesus and spend time with Jesus so that they can be impacted by Jesus and begin to follow Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is just not not a big deal, but I want to stop here for a second. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is your responsibility too. This is your responsibility too. It's your correct response to introduce your friends to the friend above all friends. The friend who is better than any other friend. It's your responsibility to invite and extend the house key so that other people can begin to follow Jesus. Now, so we got all, we got Jesus. We got Jesus' disciples. We got Matthew, who has recently become a follower of Jesus, who wants his friends to meet Jesus so they can become followers of Jesus as as, as well. And somehow, some other people got invited to the party who have a problem with Jesus spending time with all of these people who look nothing like Jesus, who act nothing like Jesus, who are problematic in every sense of the word, who are problematic on a religious scale, are problematic on a holiness scale. And by, and by the fact that these people, being around these people is a problem for these people because being around these people makes these people a little less holy than they want to be. In verse 11, we're told this, but when the Pharisees saw this, They asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? This, as they do this, this crosses a line. This isn't just under their breath or after they leave the party complaining about who Jesus is spending time with. This is out loud in the middle of the room, in the front of the people that they're talking about, calling them scum. This is the music's kind of low enough so everyone can have a conversation, get in the middle of the room and they get in their own group and say, well, why does your leader follow and spend time with such scum? This is the scum of the earth. These are the people that no one should ever want to be around because of who they are and what they've done and how they act and how they behave and how they've treated the people as they've taken the side of the enemy. These are the scum of the earth. This is beyond judgmental. This is downright rude, and disrespectful. And when Jesus heard this, <laughs> the problem they had was that Jesus heard this. When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus hears them hears them calling his, his new friends scum, and Jesus turns around and he says, hey, they're not scum, they're sick. That's interesting. Every one of Matthew's friends in that moment heard Jesus call them sick, which is offensive. And yet we don't hear a word about them being offended. And if you want to know why they're not offended, sick people know they are sick and they know they need a doctor. Sick people know they are sick and they know they need a doctor. When you're sick, you know you're sick. When your throat gets scratchy, when your, nose, when your nose gets stuffy, when you start coughing, when you start perspiring and when it's, when it's 50 degrees out, I mean, let's be honest, we live in New Mexico, most of us perspire all summer long in some way, shape or form, but when it gets to the fall and it's 50 degrees out and you're still sweating and you're still dripping and you've got the chills, you know you're sick. You, ha- you know how to read the symptoms of your life. You know when something is going wrong. And you know that when you're sick, as much as you don't like going to see him, as much as you don't like going to, going to see the doctor, making the appointment, going to the urgent care, as much as you don't like it, you know when you're sick that you need a doctor. Do you know why we don't hear that Matthew's friends were offended by Jesus calling them sick? They knew they were sick. They knew they had a problem. They knew they were things that they could no longer see. They knew there were things in their life that were absolutely broken and they had completely run out of the ability to repair them. They knew that they were relationally broke. They knew they had compromised their integrity. They knew they had compromised their identity and who they were supposed to be. They knew that on their own, there was probably no way to go back and to start over, They were not offended because, because G, when Jesus called them sick because they knew Jesus was acknowledging the reality of their lives. Here's what I know, and here's what the amazing thing is. Not only did, G, did they hear Jesus call them sick, every one of Matthew's friends also heard Jesus call himself the doctor. Do you want to know why they weren't offended? They knew they were sick, and they knew Jesus had just offered his help. Jesus didn't step in as one judging. Jesus stepped in as one extending a hand ready to lift them out of their sickness and toward a place of health. Jesus called himself the only one able to restore what sin has broken. I mean, like Jesus said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. These people need a doctor. I am here to be the doctor for their sickness. And sin is the ultimate sickness that they deal with. So I have come to be the doctor to address what no one else can deal with. It sounds, which, I mean, like, let's just be honest. This sounds arrogant. To say, like, I'm the only one who can actually bring them out of the place where they are. I'm the only one who can lead them away from their brokenness. This sounds arrogant until that same guy was nailed to a Roman cross and then ate breakfast on the beach three days later. Like, when you have overcome death, when you've overcome sin, when you've overcome the grave, when you've overcome hell, you can be the person that says, I am the only one who can lead you out of what sin has broken. He said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. These people are not scum, they're sick. And I came to be the doctor who would lead them away from what has made them sick and what has broken them. Verse 13 would go on to say this. Then Jesus added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners." Now, this is so interesting. I, I did a little research on this because I, I found the idea that of Jesus as the doctor. See, I, I grew up hearing about Jesus as the great physician. And anytime someone was... Was, was sick or in need of a miracle, we would talk about God as the great physician. And I, and I thought that's such a beautiful picture, but I thought it's so interesting that Jesus doesn't call himself the great physician. Jesus says he's the doctor who's come to cure their sickness. See, his, his use of the term doctor is really interesting because in that time in the Roman world, doctor, the word doctor, the idea of doctor was undergoing a massive change in what was expected of a doctor. Up until about 100 BC, doctors were essentially superstitious remedy triers. I mean, they they had no no medical training. There was no scientific training. There was no scientific understanding of the human body. There was no scientific understanding of why germs spread. There was no understanding of germs. There was just sometimes people got sick, Sometimes people died suddenly. Sometimes people would get fevers and, and and collapse and be in bed and sweating, and we don't know what to do. And there was no idea of infection. I mean, there's so no idea of anything. There was sometimes religious people, almost like witchcraft, almost like witch doctors. There was people who had ideas from a religious book where a verse would say something about something, about something, something, something that sort of kind of connected to this thing that sort of seems like it's going on with this person. So my book seems like we should suggest getting this thing from out in a field, putting it on them, making a tea with it, hoping that they get better. And if they get better, man, that's, wow, it's wow, awesome. It worked. Woo! And if it doesn't, well, who can blame us? All we're doing is trying to interpret these religious texts. And so that was the idea of what a doctor was up until about 100 BC, 100 years before Jesus would walk the earth. About 100 BC in, in, in Greece, in the, in the Greece, in Greece, which was you know, part of the, of the Roman world, there was a, group, a small group of doctors, about four doctors over the course of about 50 years, who completely revolutionized the idea of what a doctor did. They actually began to, to study the human body, to, to take copious notes about what happened when their patients were sick and what happened that actually brought them healing. Like what, what didn't work what did work? When people would die, they would autopsy the body. To, to, they would open up the body to see how the body had been attacked, what had gone wrong inside the body. They would, they would autopsy the livers and, and, and the organs inside to see if something had happened on, on, the, on the internal level. And they, they took all kinds of notes. And what they came to understand is that, P, is that diseases could be identified and you could treat particular diseases. You could identify the disease and you could come up with a remedy for that disease. It's an interesting thing. Here's what doctors essentially had, had to do. In the hundred years before Jesus arrived, doctors came to be known as people who could identify a problem and could prescribe a remedy. They could identify a problem and they could prescribe a remedy. And here's what Jesus means when he says, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I came to be the doctor for their sickness. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus came to be the doctor that would identify the problem and prescribe the remedy. Jesus came to be the doctor that would identify their problem and would prescribe the remedy. See, Jesus, here's the, here's the beautiful thing here. I mean, some of us, when we hear a message like this, we say like, everyone's invited, everyone's extended a house key. No matter what your life has looked like, we think like, oh, see, this is the watering down the gospel. No, Jesus never came to water down the gospel. What Jesus did is Jesus called sin, sin. Jesus called sin, sin. Jesus said, you're not the scum of the earth. You are a sinner. You're not the scum of the earth. I'm not going to judge you for it, but you are a sinner. This is the problem. This is your real problem. This is your ultimate problem. Your ultimate problem is not that one decision or that one decision or that one decision or how you treated them or how you did or what you did the, um, this weekend. That's not the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem is that you have been infected by sin, and sin is ruining everything about you. It's ruining your decision-making. It's ruining how you treat people. It's ruining how you love others. It's ruining your... It, ruining you by causing you to be more selfish than you have any right to be. It's ruining you because sin doesn't make you bad. Sin makes you dead. Sin is killing you from the inside out and from the outside in. Sin is killing you. Jesus said sin is sin. He didn't water it down. He didn't go, well, that's really not that bad. He says, no, no, no. It's, it's actually worse than you think. It's going to kill you. He said sin is sin is sin. And sin is a problem. Sin is the problem. And sin has to be addressed and sin has to be dealt with. That's what Jesus said. Jesus came to call sin, sin. But then Jesus also called himself the remedy. Jesus called sin, sin. And then Jesus called himself the remedy. He said, I came to be the doctor, not just one who would have a remedy, but who would be the remedy. See, Jesus's death and resurrection. Is the remedy for our greatest and our ultimate problem of sin? Jesus's death on the cross paid the price for the sins that you would have that you have committed, the, the sins that you would commit. Jesus's death on the cross paid for your sins, the sins that had separated you, the sins that maybe still are separating you from God right in this very moment. Jesus came to pay for them so that those would not separate you from your heavenly Father anymore. When your trust is in Jesus's death as a payment for your sin, as the price for your sin. And then Jesus's resurrection is what draws you out of your sin, what sets you free from sin. You've had the sin paid for, the price of sin has been paid, that also has been made available that, that he has lifted you out from your sin and has brought you into his new life. Jesus called sin, sin, and Jesus called himself the remedy because sick people, because health people, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Sick people who are lost in their sin, who are dying in their sin, who are drowning in their sin, who are dead in their sin, who have turned away from who they were created to be because of their sin, who have turned their back on their ultimate purpose because of momentary ple- while seeking momentary pleasure because of their sin. People who have done exactly what Matthew slash Levi did because of their sin and all of his friends because of their sin. Jesus said, you're not the scum of the earth. I do not judge you. I do not condemn you, but I do want to let you know you are sick and I came to be the remedy. I came to be the one who could save you from your sin and I can save you if you will accept the invitation to follow me. Jesus has done that for them. Jesus did that for me. And here's the best news of all. Jesus did that for you. Jesus did that for you. So that you, who knows you're a sinner, who knows life is broken, who knows life is broken because you broke it, who knows relationships are broken because you, along with your sin, broke it, who, knew you, who knows, knows that your reputation because of your sin has been broken. Like Jesus, who knows all of that about you, who sees your sin, who sees your brokenness, who sees your desperation, who sees your need for him, sees how lost you are, he came to find you. He came to extend the invitation to you. To follow him and to find new life in him and to find the forgiveness of your sin, to find freedom from your sin and to find new life in him. He offers to you and he offers to me, he offers to every person that's ever walked the earth. People who have abandoned their identity to, to, to pursue something else, people who have abandoned their ultimate purpose to seek, better, to seek temporary pleasure. Like he has extended the invitation to everyone, including you, to follow him. And so today, as we close, I want to extend an invitation to you. I, again, you're, you're, you're watching on YouTube, you're watching on Facebook. I don't know where you're watching from, but I know for some of us, you're, you're watching because someone sent you a, a video link. You're watching because someone shared it on Facebook and it ended up in your timeline. You're seeing this today and you don't know exactly why you're seeing this, but I believe that God brought this to your attention right now. God, the, God dropped this in your feed right now. God, God, set, God encouraged someone to send you this, the, the link to this video right now. Because you need to be reminded that life isn't just a little bit broken. You are desperately sick and desperately in need of a doctor. Sin has broken your life. Sin has broken you. Jesus came to be the doctor and the remedy for what sin has broken in you. And today, if you would like to accept the invitation of Jesus to follow him, it looks like this. You place your trust in Jesus' death for the forgiveness of your sins. You place your trust in Jesus' resurrection as the way to bring you freedom from your sins and to find new life in him. That's how it begins. You trust Jesus. He extends his hand to you. You grab it and you say, yes, I'll follow you. I'll trust your death. I'll trust your resurrection, and I'll trust you every moment from this moment forward because I believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace for us. Thank you for the freedom that is available in Jesus. Thank you for the invitation that Jesus has extended to every single one of us. God, so I pray that we would have the wisdom right now To to turn away from our sin, to turn away from what's broken us, to turn away from what's broken our lives, to turn away from what's broken us. And to find healing in the loving hands of the Dr. Jesus. To find find healing, to find freedom, to find salvation, to find grace in the loving hands of the Dr. Jesus Thank you that he came to be the remedy. Thank you that he's extended the invitation to every single one of us. Thank you that his death and his resurrection made the remedy available for all of us. Help us to trust in that. Help us to find freedom and peace and joy and life and hope and oh yes, salvation in Jesus. Help us to trust him. Help us to follow him. Help us to love you and serve you as we follow Jesus. We love you, God, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.